Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming out on this icy, snowy day. A number of years ago, I overheard a theological conversation among a group of preteen gymnasts. One had asked the others, what are you? Seeing the puzzled faces, she went on, do you believe in Jesus and are you saved? So they stumbled around a little bit, but answered by naming the religion they practiced. Each volunteered their answer, Christian, 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 Jewish, Catholic, Christian, ethical culture. Now that last was my daughter Ariana speaking, and it was a bit of a conversation stopper. As it happened, Ari was next up on the, uh, to work on her floor routine, and so she skipped away. One wide-eyed girl whispered with great concern in her voice and to anyone who was listening, ooh, that sounds weird. What do they believe in? But that was okay, because a friend of Ari's, who had been to us a couple of times, stepped in and he answered with great authority, they believe in recycling. <laughs> And so today, I thought I would just add a little more elaboration on what it is we are as an ethical religious movement. But I also want to say that trying to spell out the basics of ethical culture in one platform was not just a little bit challenging. So I'm focusing on a few key items. And then I want to, want to express some concern, I think, for this movement of ours that we love. When in 1876, Adler and the colleagues of his day developed ethical culture as a religious movement, it was radical for his time. Here was a religion without theological affirmations, creeds, or doctrines, just simply a reverence for ennobling, life-affirming, and morally commendable ideals. When it was founded, it took New York by storm. It caught the attention of presidents and world figures, and its prophetic vision and concrete reform efforts have had lasting impact in addressing, addressing injustice and other acts to enlarge the lives and hopes of others. When I think about those courageous founding members I am so grateful for the fortitude they must have had to bring this movement into being. And such an idealistic and brave dream they had about what urban life could be. This was offered at a time when Americans, American cities were teeming with immigrants living in slums, impoverished tenements, millions of factory and sweatshop laborers, including children with appallingly low wages and with virtually no rights and no benefits or basic social services. Adler's radical call to action galvanized our then tiny little movement and its successes in starting a system for the care of the indigent sick, attacking the problem of affordable housing in New York, providing education for the children of the poor, pioneering settlement work, 
changing labor laws and many other contributions to social reform literally changed the face of New York and Philadelphia and other cities around the country. For 134 years, our ethical societies have participated in hundreds of projects that have transformed lives, benefited our communities, and worked for a better world. There's so much that I could say with great pride about our history, but that will have to wait for another platform. We live in a very different world than that of our founders, one that's kinder and easier in many respects. And yet, the reality of poverty, drug abuse, poorly funded and performing schools in low-income areas, and racial polarization persists, providing a very stark contrast to Adler's dream. Maybe more so here, where, where we are sitting on some of the most expensive real estate in the world, but where people living on the streets are right outside our doors. Ethical culture would later become a part of the broader humanist movement, and it is believed that the word humanism was publicly used in 1877, apparently for the first time in this country, to apply to Felix Adler, pejoratively. Adler resisted the label humanist. He preferred the term ethical culture because for him the purpose of our movement was to create a life, a way of life, that allowed humans to flourish in such a way that we can build together an ethical culture. Adler was clear that ethical culture was his religion, though for those who are not religiously minded, he didn't care. They, they were free to consider it something else. But it's clear that he wanted to include people of both types. A shared commitment to ethics was to be the common ground for action, creating a community in which there was to be a diversity of creeds but a unanimity in deeds. For Adler, religion was essential, offering us something that we cannot find anywhere else, an affirmation that human life is sacred and of ultimate significance. We are each, in Adler's words, a sacred utterance of an infinite universe. Ethical culture begins with a statement of fact, of faith, not a fact. We believe in the inherent worth and dignity of every person. And if we take seriously that particular statement of faith, it means a certain stance that we take toward the world. If our worth is inherent, something bound up with our very humanness, then it doesn't change and fluctuate according to what we do. We don't add to that inherent worth by how successful or productive we are, and we don't undermine it through illness or when we are no, able, no longer able to make a contribution or when we fail. If there is something whole and holy about who we are, 
then that holiness is shining in there somewhere. No matter how unskillful or damaging the choices we might make. Adler spoke of that as the divine within. A sense that every person carries within them a spark of the divine. And that therefore, each thought, each word, each action should be devoted to nurturing that spark, that wholeness in ourselves and in others. And so what this means is that our attention is not fixed on how well we do or how much we have. My energy doesn't have to waste itself on how fast or strong or talented or smart I am, how well I'm liked, how many points I score. There is something that runs beneath it and far outshines it. All the small measurements by which we so often find ourselves caught and bound. So if you're looking for the short answer of what ethical culture is, it is a movement that seeks to foster respect for that essential aspect of sacredness, a sacredness beyond value in all human beings. It says that we see a glimpse of that finest, best, most sacred self only when we elicit it in others. Act so as to bring out the best in others, and thereby we bring it out the best in ourselves. That is our central motto. And characteristically, ethical culture starts not with the self, but with the other. We are communal. We depend on each other. And in the struggle to save ourselves, we too are saved. And though all religions have ethics, ethical culture stands out as the first religion to make ethical considerations primary. Not ritual, not prayer, not worship of a supreme being. And so what do we mean by ethical? It meant to, to Adler the formation of right relations. Right personal relations as between partners, between parents and children, nation and nation. Our ethics are social. Ours is a religion of relationship. We become more ethical not by thinking ethical thoughts or dreaming them, but through acts of kindness, caring, and social responsibility. We move closer to it when we respond to a person in need in our own community, when we reach out to a child that's being bullied in school, when we work with others to change an oppressive social condition by standing for others, by enabling them to think well of themselves, as Adler put it, we attain a glimpse of something inexhaustibly precious in life. We experience ourselves as connected to others, as part of the wider tapestry of humanity. We glimpse what makes life meaningful. So ethical culture is a religion of relationships that is also a religion of duty. Adler criticized the religions of his day for retreating from the world 
and therefore, in his view, becoming irrelevant. Adler believed that we must instead immerse ourselves in the world and transform it for the better by the light of the ideals that inspire us. Each of us has an obligation to find our own distinctive way to give back to the world. We move out of our comfort level to reach out to those, and not just for the service it offers to them, to them, but also for the sake of our own transformation. No human being, he said, can be happy at the expense of another, or even in the knowledge that someone else is suffering. We are part of an interconnected human family, essential to the whole, and from which no one can be willfully separated. If justice, compassion, respect, and dignity are to be accorded to any persons in the world, then justice, compassion, respect, and dignity must be accorded to all. Adler saw that modern society reinforced our sense of fragmentation and isolation. There's a longing in us to know that we belong not only to our small selves, but to the whole of community. Adler said that to achieve that sense of wholeness, we need a concept of the whole, an ideal. God provides that ideal for theists. But in Adler's view, the spiritual ideal could not be a singular entity. But rather, it would be, if symbolized, a multitude of unique beings. And this was one of his unique contributions to the religious debate. He saw this ideal, which he called the ethical manifold, very clunky term, as consisting of an infinite universe of individuals in relationship with each other, each member a unique contribution to make, each necessary to the whole. And this ideal toward which we strive is not something that is revealed to us. It's not something that we discover. It is something that we create. This formulation of an ideal was something that worked for him, but he recognized that it might not work for others, and that was okay, as long as in some way it stimulated each of us to work toward some ideal of wholeness. Ethical culturists itch to do our part to transform the world, and there is quite literally a world of hurt out there. On the world stage, there are wars between nations, between cultures, between religious communities that threaten to rob us of our humanity and our ability to see the humanity in others. Knowing that our children will be inheriting this world, I wonder sometimes what will remain, what will be left for the long haul of all that is beautiful and decent, wise, and visionary. What will emerge from this time in human history and endure? And what part will this ethical culture movement 
this liberating version of religion based on a view of human nature that upholds the inherent worth and dignity of all persons. What part will it play in the transformation and healing of our polarized and war-weary world? What comes to mind when I think of this is a passage I read in a book called Resistance by the author Barry Lopez. One of his characters speaks in the voice of a North American man who has become an indigenous rights activist in the Amazon. And this man said, sometimes I dimly recall the days when I felt like many others that my life served no purpose. Do you remember any such days? It was as all as though we lived in tunnels back then crowded in someone else's furniture, with more furniture arriving all the time. For me, the terrifying part was the ease with which you could lose your imagination, just abandon it like a gadget. Everything was supplied, even if you had to pay for it all. In every quarter of life, it seemed we were retreating into fundamentalism, the yes-no of belief, the in-out of fashion, the hot-cold of commitment, the forward-backward of machinery, the give-and-take of a deal. Anyone not polarized became an inconvenience. People endorsed the identification of enemies and their eradication just to be rid of this inevitable blurring. We didn't hear enough then about making the enemy irrelevant. No one said loud enough to be heard over the din, let's make something beautiful so the enemy will have one less place to stand. Adler charges us with discovering what is, most best, what is best and most vital in human beings through unceasing progress in the knowledge, practice, and love of the right. And these words are carved on the cornerstone of the New York Ethical Society. For Adler, the test of ethical culture was life. We can say that we value honesty and integrity, but the test for what we actually value is what we do and how we act when we believe that no one will know what we have done or about to do. It was heartbreaking for me to learn recently that the membership numbers of our movement have fallen to the level they were in 1925. It's true that many mainstream religions have also been dropping in numbers over the last five decades, but we were small to begin with and we cannot become any smaller. I don't believe we have saturated the market with those who feel drawn to us. I can imagine that this would hold appeal for hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Americans. As good as ethical culture is, we might want to challenge ourselves to do better. And so I offer two things that I believe are required of us right now. This tradition and these societies we have inherited are a precious treasure, and it is time for us, in our individual societies and in our movement as a whole, to imagine more than we are. 
Shall we step back or shall we step ahead? Shall we take this road or that road? Shall we open ourselves to honest self-evaluation that might, might mean making some changes? There are big questions and little questions in all of this. Little questions might include, shall we more proactively let people know we're here through a marketing campaign? Big questions include questions of identity. Are we a big tent, religious way, open to believer and infidel alike, as Adler said? Or are we more philosophically pure, a place that offers a much-needed alternative for our atheists who have not been seated at the religious table or at our country's political table, for that matter, for far too long? I don't think many would take issue with our calling ourselves an educational or a philosophical movement, but there are big, edgy issues we need to resolve about our identity as a religious movement. And what, if we claim that identity, that may include? Questions concerning class and level of, educa of education required to feel welcome might bubble up to the surface. We can't help but notice that despite our excellent rhetoric about diversity and pluralism, we remain largely white, highly educated, and privileged. Are there certain cultures, certain ways of being in our communities operating below our radar screen that send signals that those outside our norms hear as messages about who and who are not accepted? If so, let's take a risk and try new ways of being. Are we as open as we might be to those who hold more traditional religious views, particularly those we like to think that we've outgrown? I'm sure that I'm not the only one who has cringed when hearing someone talk about the silliness and wrong-headedness of God-believers. Are we grappling with and challenging our own little secret pockets of smugness or superiority? The not always subtle dissing, for example, of things which for some of us are precious parts of our heritage. The blue-collar lifestyle of my childhood, for example. With family members whose lives were and are enormously enriched by their religious experiences. Ethical culture is not a faith for the mindless or the heartless or for those who are merely cynical or skeptical. We must be the change we want to see in the world. And perhaps this is what Barry Lopez meant when he talked about making something beautiful. So the enemy will have one less place to stand. The enemy in that phrase is not a person. The enemy is something that we are far more familiar with that can haunt us self-righteousness, hostility, arrogance, and exclusion. It's a worthy thing to clearly articulate what makes us unique as a movement, as long as it doesn't serve to isolate us. I am thrilled by our dedication to building bridges to our neighbors, 
and other ethical societies and the UU churches and the wider interfaith community that we have now embarked upon. I personally am in interested in whatever little boats we can find to carry us to common ground. UU minister Victoria Safford speaks of that same challenge in that movement when she asks, how can we present ourselves and know ourselves as one voice in a chorus of many that sometimes are singing the same song, the same sorrow song that human beings have always sung, the same protest song that people of faith and people of hope will always be singing, the same love songs to each other and love songs for creation, whether or not you believe in a creator. We must not be as quick to assume that everyone in our coffee hour endorses the same political candidate, or that everyone is united around any political controversy. Religious liberals are not always nor consistently political liberals. That is a false and dangerous conflation and a dishonest expectation. And besides, if we really believe in the inherent worth and dignity of every person, there should always be things going on in our societies that we do not like. Otherwise, we're only serving people exactly like ourselves. This movement of ours, this way of requiring freedom of thought and expression, honoring reason and open-mindedness, integrating our beliefs and the convictions of our hearts and the actions of our days, teaches that we can only exist in relation to others, those who are like us and those who are not. Otherwise, it has no strength, no beauty, and no relevance. It becomes arrogant and fundamentalist and dead. We live in a country that's possibly more divided than it ever has been, a divide that can only be bridged by mutual respect. If we take what we have here seriously, if we believe that it matters that we go on not only stimulating our ideas but also addressing and actively engaging human suffering, the fragility of the earth, the brokenness of our communities, and the breakability of our hearts, then we can waste no time fueling that which sets us apart and instead consider how we might become more supple and flexible in our language and in our behavior. It means reminding us ourselves that we still have much to learn if we are to continually deepen and broaden our understanding of how to make goodness real in our lives and in the lives of others. It means engaging in our individual societies and as a federation of societies, a process that might help us understand how to become more accessible and hospitable to more people. We need to continually be asking who, outside of our own society, is benefiting because of the surface, service and the refuge this community has offered. 
What is the urgent message of hope we have to give to a troubled and hurting world? And which convictions are at the heart of our identity? And despite how we may choose to change or grow, will always remain at our core. I think the answer is deep within our ability to use our values and our ability to make new ways to do things and new language to capture what we think. New ways to affect change and to promote civil dialogue. New ways to be courageous. New ways to claim who we are and why we're here. New ways to talk of our common life that resonate with people outside our doors. I believe that if we can be clear about who we are and what we are about, and why we as ethical societies exist, we might, might start to feel more at home with ourselves. And then we just might find the way to open our doors wider to make more room. Beyond that, I think we must reclaim the prophetic voice our movement had in prior days. Our collective power, though small, is considerable. Ethical culture becomes meaningful only as each of us lives by it and has a voice in the world only as we speak it. Taking public stands when it comes after deep and honest and sometimes difficult discussion is a vital part of who we are. It has to be okay for people to disagree and dissent. Our, we are called I believe, to speak and to not be silent, to question things and challenge them, to bear witness, it's a religious term, to write letters, to issue invitations of resistance and calls for action. We must name things, speak the silent stories that might otherwise not be heard. I visited my daughter Ariana at college a couple of years ago and picked up a book called Poems from Guantanamo, written by the men being held there. The prisoners had no pen or paper, and so if they were meant to reach another prisoner, they traveled, the, the words traveled from one man's mouth to another man's ear, on and on through the corridors memorized by a string of prisoners each step of the way. Sometimes the poems were scratched on the sides of a styrofoam cup with a pebble and secretly passed from cell to cell. When the guards discovered what was going on, they smashed the containers and threw them away, fearing that it was a way of passing coded messages. But in 84 instances, the cup fragments survived. Beautiful testaments to human dignity. Beautiful songs of hope. Inviting people to learn about us is the simple act of getting people's attention for the purpose of sharing something that promises hope. Something that makes a difference. Something worth, worth investing in. How might we speak to the world, speak out loud, and be on these walls the principles of this movement we cherish? How can we deepen and broaden our role as a force for good, 
to always be telling the story of humanity, of our ideals, of where we stand right now and where we might yet become. This is the challenge we face and one that we will ignore at our peril.